Welcome back to the Get Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Credit. Alongside me, as always, is my partner in crime, Grant Robertson. How you doing, pal? I'm doing great. I'm all the way live from St. George, Utah. About to do my first ever book review. I don't even know what that means, but I'm, I'm jacked. How about yourself? Yeah, I, same same thing. You know, it's called a book review. Is this book club? We don't know. Uh, the idea, though, we always have a theme on the show. Got to read books, go learn. We give you some topics, and we're trying to give you a general overview. We're trying to get you, you know, 60, 70% of the way there, but to dive into that extra 30%, it really helps to go read books. So we decided, hey, why not actually read a book and talk about like how it impacts how we look at things and how it will, you know, kind of enlighten us a little bit to our current points of views. And this week, you don't want to get into the book that we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I, for the longest time, I've always been a fan of Simon Sinek, um, someone I've listened to his books, read a handful of them, uh, dating probably three, four or five years back. And when me and you brought up this idea, you actually brought up the idea and I loved it. And you, you gave me the option that choose the first book and a book that was on my mind uh, when we had been talking was a book called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And I think it's like the third or fourth edition in his series um, all about, you know, uh, business and just the business philosophy. So why don't you start it off and let's just talk about the infinite game and what we learned and who Simon Sinek is to start. Yeah. Simon, Simon's one of the premier kind of business philosophers. That's what I kind of call him. And maybe he isn't just in business, but it seems like a lot of his books revolve around that and organizations. Uh, he's got some New York times bestsellers already that are leaders eat last and start with why we both have read. I think I've read both those books. I'm sure you have as well. Yeah. Uh, and today we're kind of going to talk about a little bit more of the infinite game. And it was really interesting. Cause I was like, what is this? I don't even know what this means. <laughs> and so I just flipped it open. I just started reading and it, I realized that it was like, Oh, the infinite game is like, well, it's like business is an infinite, um, I don't even know how to say it, a being, uh, it's just an infinite thing that always exists. Like Apple, like their goal is to be around forever, like not to go bankrupt. And he's a big Apple guy, but the reason why he's a big Apple guy is because of a lot of their core foundations of how they run their organization is because they're not playing a timeline. And that's what he says, you know, it has no official timeline or ending to it. You know, uh, you have these monthly quotas, you have these quarterly, you know, numbers, quarterly reports you're trying to hit, but there's always another year. Like it doesn't stop. Like if you, Grant, if you hit your quota for this next year as you're a sales guy, it doesn't, oh, oh I, I win, game over, time to go home. No, yeah. get back, show up Monday, we'll see you again. <laughs> Instant gratification. <laughs> yeah, I like you, man. I uh, Well, go ahead, finish. I want to hear the rest of this. No, I was going to, just going to kind of throw it over to you actually and say, how did that resonate when you first kind of read that definition of an infinite game? Similar. Cause I was thinking, you know, infinite game, I knew it was about business, but I didn't really understand or I didn't really think about how he was going to approach it. Uh, primarily because most of his books prior to leaders eat last and uh, start with why they were, they were really uh, kind of deep dives into business uh, about not just profit, but like why people buy things. And it was more than data. It was, you know, you call them analytics, but it was all about, uh, 
you know, pulling on the heartstrings of people and doing good and leaders need to be more than just the common man. So the infinite game, I was thinking he was coming from that angle, but it was kind of perplexed because thinking like we're playing the infinite game in a finite game, meaning like our lives are all finite. So, you know, do people want to have the wherewithal to uh, grow businesses beyond themselves? Like, do you think Steve Jobs really thought to your point about Apple really thought that Apple was going to continue on without him? Of course he did, but do, do you think he was building it that way? Or do you think he was just building it with the expectation that 10 years down the road, he was going to be running Apple still. And it's hard for people to wrap around their heads of, you know, where are you going to be when you're gone, when your kids are running it or some other just random wall street dudes running your company? Like you don't think of it that way. So it was, it was different and I loved it. I think he gave some pretty cool examples in, in the real world of, of what an infinite mindset or an infinite game happened or what happened in an infinite uh, ty- type of event where he talked about Vietnam or USA literally won every single battle in Vietnam, just murdered everyone. But they kind of lost the war because Vietnam's whole mindset was just to outlast, just, just stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. They had no desire to win any battles. It's just all about staying alive until your competition just ran out of resources and the will to continue to go because, you know, a lot of things happening back home. Then you start to second guess yourself when you're doing something for too long. So America pulled out of the Vietnam War. They told everyone they won, but, you know, everyone else in the world thought, like, did, did you win? What did you really accomplish there? Uh, there's a lot of examples of those in business too. Can you think of any uh, offhand that he alluded to or that you can think of based on those premises? I'm going to jump onto your Vietnam comment because... <laughs> Right. We were fighting to what? We didn't really have a mission. We didn't really have a, we didn't have anything. We just went over there and said, Oh, we need to fight them because they might be communists. And that was a bad time. Well, yeah, that, we were because we might need to fight them. Uh, well, Vietnam was fighting because they wanted to exist. Like, think about that. <laughs> yeah. we want to exist. Just live. We, yeah. We, we don't, yeah, we want to have our culture, everything that we believe in and how we live. We want that to exist. And that was a much bigger, you know, what we're going to turn into now, like a just cause. Well, hold on. I want to talk more about this a little bit. You're like, you're right. Like they just wanted to just exist. Well, America was just like, we want to eradicate communism. And as we've seen, what, when was, I don't know when the Vietnam war ended probably like 30, 40 years, 50 years ago, maybe like, yeah, communism clearly is still alive. Look at, look at North Korea. I mean, look at I don't think China. Is China communism? I don't even know. They are. Twitter says, Twitter says they are, so I have to assume it's right. Um, but there's businesses that that exude this infinite game mindset. Like I can think initially of Jim Beam. You know, if you didn't know this, Jim Beam has literally been around since 1795. Um, yeah, crazy, right? And just think, they're they're seven generations in. I think like 10 years ago, I, I googled this, and they had 10 million barrels uh, worth of Jim Beam have just been sold in in the year 2005, which is what 15 years ago. So clearly Jim Beam, you think of it and you just think it's like some mid-grade $20 alcohol and you're right. But whatever they're doing in their mission, they, they survived depression, prohibition. I mean, we live in Utah, right? Like states like this didn't even really allow alcohol drinking until, I don't know, 20 years ago. So thinking of companies that literally their whole mission is to survive and give you some form of nectar of the gods in their opinion. Uh, that's their mission. Is <laughs> It survived seven generations in. We talk about businesses all the time. I mean, I have a family business here. Uh, that I'm a part of. They're a second. They're in their second generation, and it, it's a civil war. I mean, I hope it gets to the third or fourth, but it's most most don't get past the first. So anyway, what I like to a, a situation to kind of examine the infinite game, right? Amazon's been around for a while. They were picked on. They were oh, you just sell books online. You do the. You don't make any money. 
they had an infinite mindset building in their business and they still really do. If you think about, like go to a normal retailer and then try to do online shopping, right? Let's say it's Banana Republic and let's buy something and it doesn't quite work out for you and you want to return it. Well, you got to pay $12 in return shipping now. So now you're eating up the cost to get it to you. Then you got to send it back. And like businesses are like, nope, that's on you. You got to pay for it. And Bezos is like, you know what? I care so much about you as a customer. I know you're going to be a customer forever. So well, just send it back to me. I'll take care of it. And I got the cheapest freight cost in the business. Just let me handle it. It's not nickel and dime me here to death, but let me make sure to take care of you because I want you to keep coming back to Amazon. If you feel like you get screwed, that's why we turn away from businesses. It's not because we don't like their product. It's because we feel like we got screwed. Yeah, their number one goal. Jeff Bezos talks about it all the time. I read a book of his a little while back and literally talks about my whole entire mission was customer service. As long as our customer service was taken care of, uh, you can lose money at the end of the day. You're still going to grow your company as long as you're resilient. I think resilience is the word that uh, Simon used quite a bit. It's like the key attribute to an infinite game. Uh, but to give everyone an example of what a finite game is, and everyone's pretty aware once we explain this, it's like a, think of like a sporting event. There's literally a winner every single time, unless it's the Eagles Bengals game over the weekend and it goes in overtime. But the point is, the finite game is clocked. There's a winner and a loser, and at the end of it, and at the end of the super, at the end of a a football season, there's a winner. So that's a finite game. There's a, there's a conclusion to the entire event and somebody won and somebody lost. That's the definition of a finite game. An infinite game is more, there is no winner or loser. It's whoever can survive the longest. Yeah. The funny thing when you try to think of business in finite terms, which a lot of people do, it's like, have to. Who, who, who won the fiscal quarter or who won the fiscal year? Oh, well, we all made a bunch of money. So did we all yeah. win? <laughs> right so it's like we sometimes get in too much of this competitive angst it's you know my current organization that i work for we actually never think about the competition it's not that we don't and not we know they're there and they're better at us at some things and we're better at that but we don't try to figure out like what that we just try to be the best organization that we can be that fits our model we don't try to go out there you know it'd be Drew Brees doesn't go out and try to be Lamar Jackson and Lamar Jackson doesn't try to be Drew Brees to go back to a sports reference. Right, we don't think about, Oh, what is the customer doing? You know, how can I better do this? The Blackberry example that he gave in the book where Blackberry had the market on yeah. business and government people, mm -hmm. you know, they're on email. They're constantly sending messages back and forth. Well, the iPhone came out. Blackberry didn't really lose a lot of market share. They lost some naturally because the iPhone was kind of cool, but then, BlackBerry tried to be something it wasn't and tried to didn't double down on what they are and why people, people use BlackBerry because they're workers, right? They're hustlers, they're deal closers, <laughs> you know, they're, you know, what, what's the other word? Lawmakers. Like they're, they're trying to do things and instead they try to just make it this feature thing and say, well, the iPhone and the touchscreen, maybe we should do that instead of knowing what they're good at. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great parlay. And uh, I know I cut you off earlier about just cause, just cause being another huge, huge point. You know, we're probably going to go down the line about six to eight points and give you about the book and talk about them. Just cause is, is one of its major ones. And I think you could talk about Blackberry because I think Apple is a version of what he talks about, who he believes has a just cause. So, so what do you think? This is the key component and the overarching theme of the entire book. And I had to kind of read this one a couple of times. Like many organizations think it's like their mission is their just cause. It's not really. It's like an ideal vision of the future that doesn't necessarily exist. Uh, I can actually pivot. It's easier for me to talk about 
Apple, you know, there's a story out there that Steve Jobs talking with Andy Warhol once designed an early version of what would be the iPad. He's like, we can get all these computer components into a touchscreen and we'll be able to manage it like this. And this is when Andy, this is when they first came out with the mouse. Apple was the first person to go out with the most ubiquitous piece of equipment that we all use today. And that's computer mouse. And think about trying to use it. Now I'm very good at using a computer without a mouse. Cause you know, cause I like to be, <laughs> cause it's a skill. But think about trying to use a computer without a mouse. It's almost impossible. And eventually you start to think about what Steve Jobs wanted to do. He wanted to make our lives easier. And what's the easiest way to, to do that? Put everything that we could potentially use in a cell phone. That's been so far pretty good. Let, let's talk about that for a second because I want I have my own version of what I want to talk about. But to yours, in that book, you're right. Steve Jobs is the ultimate example. And I want to talk about the mouse because he said, like Steve Jobs, um, Simon Sinek talks in the book. It's like uh, you need to make this like complete 180 move. And he calls it ex- existential flexibility. Uh, which we'll get into later, but he talks about Steve Jobs uh, empowering his, you know, the whole point of his Steve Jobs's message of working at Apple is like, we need to empower the individuals to stand up to big brother, right? Like, you know, you watch those commercials and go against the grain. It's like the mission of Apple. Uh, but Jobs talks about it in the book. And I don't know if you recall this, uh, him and some people at Apple, they visited like Xerox, like the company Xerox, their Xerox uh, park. It's like their R and D division. And he talked about how, like the graphics had an interface to it. And like, if you can just use this mouse to grab folders and put it into places, but what we think today is like, yeah, isn't that a computer? You just have your mouse and you click on the internet and you go to the internet. He's like, no, like that's computer language, but the mouse and what Xerox was performing was a complete 180. to what everything else was happening in the world. So when Steve jobs came back to his office, he talked about, uh, you know, he talked about how he wanted that. And one of the, one of the voices of reason kind of in the crowd amongst one of the senior VBs stood up and was like, Hey man, that's too much money. Oh, it's going to blow up the company. If we do that, like we've already invested too much into this direction. And Steve jobs is kind of famous for saying like, wow, at least I get to blow up my own company as opposed to somebody else. Like <laughs> the point being is like, he kind of learned that whole mouse example in the book from someone else ripped it off and he made that ex- like existential flex or he, created his like just his just cause was there but he didn't want to continue his just cause um you talked about it earlier you know like what a just cause is and it's you know this is done in the belief that doing the right thing is happening and based on hope so it's like it satisfies it satisfies someone's like why to their core belief in any industry it's not just a mission of the company it's more of like a forecast and i have a great example of this i was watching football this weekend by myself my, my family was around, but they don't care for sports. So I'm just like my own addict. And uh, I watched this Amazon commercial. You'll appreciate this, Josh. I don't know if you saw it. And during the NFL yesterday, and this Amazon commercial talks solely about like the climate pledge and, and its commitment to be net zero carbon across all verticals of Amazon by 2040. And like in, in the commercial, the talent, whoever the, whoever the actor is, he literally said, we don't know how we're going to get there, but I'm really excited for the challenge. That's literally an example of a just cause. Is the guy's like, yeah, we want to be net zero carbon and help the world. We just don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we're super excited to take this challenge on. And that hit me right there. So that's a just cause. The guy literally has no idea. Like he wants to build a better place, but he has no idea how to get there. So that's, I guess, an example 24 hours ago. I guess it's a great example. And you start to see them when you, when you really look for them. And once you understand them, you kind of – 
start to, oh, okay, this makes a lot more sense. I think uh, of an industry that's horrible with just causes and, um, yeah, that really struggles in some of this stuff is the banking industry, right? They're all yeah. about bottom lines. They don't have just causes. They're not, hey, to make sure people can budget right or I don't know what a just cause, a just cause in the banking would be like so people can understand money and live a better life. Like that, that's something like what banking should be for a just just cause. And instead it's like, nope, how many fees can we, how many overdraft fees can we hit them with? <laughs> or it's Wells Fargo opening up like 2 million yeah. checking accounts. That's what we talked about. I believe is like Wells Fargo just cheated everyone. And it was a whole cultural problem. Yeah. We'll get into that too. Like the culture is a big thing. Like when you're just playing a finite game when you're just, Oh, how many sales did we get? Who, who signed up? You know, what numbers did we push? Did we hit our metrics? That that's great. And you need that. That stuff's important to a degree, but when that's your only, when that's the number one on the list, it's going to cause a ton of waterfall situations where people start bending the rules a little bit so that they can hit their number. For sure. So, you know, when we're talking about just cause Simon in his book, he, he really lays it out and he, he gives you five principles and this is, this is kind of your eye test, smell test, however you quantify or qualify it about if you, if it is a just cause. So I'll go through these five principles. We can talk about them a little bit. So principle number one, he says, in order for this to be a just cause, principle number one, it has to be for something. So it has to be like affirmative or, or, or optimistic. It has to be pro, not anti. So it cannot be negative. It has to be pro. Um, he says it, it's got to be inclusive. That's number two. So it has to be open to all those who would like to contribute. It, it can't, it's not really a club. It's more of a vision. Think of it that way. Uh, principle number three. He mentions has to be service oriented. So it actually actually has to be for the primary benefit of others. So you're actually benefiting the world. So you created something that's destroying a negative. Or you're doing something that people, when consuming or using, are actually having a higher uh, form of life. He mentions resilient. We talked about this a little earlier. Resilient, resilient is his fourth principle. It's you know being able to endure political technological and cultural change. That's in my personal belief system. That's where most of these companies fail or visions fail. Uh, and the final is idealistic, which this one made me laugh because it's basically about being bold, but ultimately unachievable. <laughs> it's kind of like being carbon neutral. Yeah. By, by 2040. 2040. <laughs> we don't know how we're going to get it. there. <laughs> we're going to try. Trillion dollar market cap. I don't know how to spend my money. That's what he said. <laughs> but I do like, that aspect of that that's having a great just cause and having a great culture. Like the guys like Bezos, Hey, you guys got to be carbon neutral by 2040. And they're just like, okay, we'll figure it out. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to sure as hell try because we think it's the right thing to do. That's, that's really impactful. And it starts to show like if the people, like if you have a just cause, like people want to work for you a whole hell of a lot more because they like they're excited to go to work you know i'm sure those people at wells fargo were like oh, i gotta go to the bank today i'm just gonna sign up a bunch of fake credit card card <laughs> accounts this week yeah so you you followed the news i'm sure over the weekend what's the name what's the governor of california is it gavin newsom 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 what is it gavin is that his first name mm-hmm. <laughs> i think it's gavin uh he came out and signed a bill saying all electric all cars uh, post 2035 can no longer be gas powered. They have to be electrical cars that just came out over the weekend. Like he's just signed the bill. So 
after reading the infinite game and I saw that my whole entire thought was like, wow, he just created a whole vision of the world where by 2035, we can't have all the smog and we live in Utah. There's just, it's called an inversion here where, you know, you live in the Valley and there's enough cars that drive around where they just formulate all the smog and the, in the atmosphere and it doesn't even really go away so you're just breathing in this dense air that's horrible for you you feel like you're in japan uh and the only way it goes away is if a big storm comes in which you know fortunately enough in utah it happens more frequently than not but uh he signs that bill gavin newsom signs the bill over the weekend where by 2035 car like car manufacturers like tesla i mean they're just going to grow and grow and grow and there's going to be the nicolas of the world i know they're frauds right now but there's gonna be a lot of those companies coming out and a lot more of the G, the GMs, the Fords. I mean, they're going to try to pivot as much, but uh, they can no longer sell gas gas powered vehicles. So that that's a real life version of what I thought was a, a just cause, uh, at least the implementation of a just cause. We'll see where it goes. I'm sure there's a loophole in every system. Again, it needs to kind of be bold, maybe unachievable. Maybe 2030 is a little too soon. Uh, yeah, but ultimately, yeah, you got to start somewhere. Uh, and I think it's it's really important um, to transition another company that has usually pretty pretty solid just causes and that always does well is Nike. Like they, how many times they always stand up and say, "Hey, this isn't this isn't fair. We'll stand up for injustice." And they'll they do the craziest things that people are like, "Oh, I'm not wearing Nike." Well, their stock price has doubled, so whatever you're doing, it's, you weren't wearing <laughs> it before. Yeah. But that's what happens when you have a company that that has these just causes like we're here to move you we're to help you move and like be fashionable and be forward and you can take on the world anybody can do it let's let's talk let's talk nike for a second then let's go down it so like all right i'll give you the five and you tell me where they fit so you said nike so the first principle is for something it's affirmative and optimistic what do you think nike's you know, what are they affirmative and optimistic for? Like, what are they for? What's their mission when you hear Nike? I, to me, it's like they they are for that anybody can achieve their goals. Just anybody can yeah. be a champion. Yeah. Anybody can be anything, right? You know? Yeah. You, yeah. All right. And then they want to be inclusive, which means like they're open to all those who would like to contribute. Yeah. I mean, think about the all the ads are currently running. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It shows you know, someone from a poor family, from a, a, a middle family, but everyone can do this. This is something that is achievable for everybody. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they do everything from like a tennis player to a track player to a football player to like a female to a different race. I mean, they, they do a, they do a phenomenal job of inclusivity. Uh, service oriented for the primary benefit of others. So for this one, I mean, they do have like, it's weird, right? Because it's a just cause. And this is a good example of kind of going through one live. Like service oriented, well, they do a lot of give back. They make sure that people in certain areas can have basketball courts through their shoe recycling programs, and um, ultimately, they're they're trying to do. They they try to they have. If you think about it, they have shoes all across the spectrum. They have them at shoe sensation all the way up to house of hoops that are five hundred dollars a pair, but they also have that thirty dollar pair. So when you talk about it's all inclusive. It really is. If you want to be a Nike branded athlete from a five-year-old to a 30-year-old, you could, your budget is encapsulated all the way throughout. Yeah. I just thought about that, by the way. No, it's good. I think that's, that's probably the, that's the 100% example I would probably have given too. It's like, yeah, it's, that's how they are service oriented is they're, they're very ubiquitous to everybody and everything. 
uh, resilient. This is, I, I have a great one for this, but I'm sure you do too. I, I was just going to say, look, they took the side of Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, don't stand for something. You'll like you'll lose everything. Whatever his quote is. I mean, I was talking about taking it on the chin. You know, I mean, you chose a side, right? And you chose the political side, not the technological or cultural, just purely political side. And you're probably right. I, I would think, right? Yeah, they've always done this as well. They've always taken these kind of aggressive political stands and a lot to do with race. I mean, mm-hmm. their core person that they're trying to encapsulate is the youth, uh, middle-aged black person, black male, to be exact. That's who they're trying to capture. That's their main core. Now, because of that, they get a lot of other things. I mean, that's if you look up their market, that is, I, I got that from the CMO of Nike. Yeah. So that was like their, that's who we're trying to, that's who we're really trying to engage. And that brings a lot of other people with it because it is a kind of a, a fair, just cause of, hey, everyone needs an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, today's about race. Yesterday was about gender. I mean, they, they do a good job of being on brand in the moment. So uh, idealistic. This is a good one. Big, bold, and ultimately unachievable. <laughs> kind of tongue in cheek. Hey, it's equal for everybody. It's kind of not, but they, <laughs> is, yeah. they, they try to, hey, we all can do this. We're all champions in our own way. And we all can't be basketball players, but I don't think that's what they mean. I think they you can find a way to be a champion in your home court or in your hometown, et cetera. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, they, they do know that they, not everyone can be a champion, but they, they push that and they're big and bold. They do a good job of it. I think you're right. Nike doesn't embody a lot of these five principles in, in every sector. We can go way further into it, but I think Nike is a good brand for it. Agreed. I think that allows us to go into our next topic. Uh, we're gonna, he mentions things about leadership, right? And leadership's really important for the infinite game. Uh, one person that he picks on, and I love to pick on personally, is Jack Welch. Um, and, you know, he was a CEO. Everybody loved him, all shareholders and yada, yada, yada. And if you look at his business was not built for the infinite game at all. I mean, that literally couldn't be more finite. The moment he walked out of the door, that thing went to, went to the bottom. I mean, that's just how bad of a organization. And when you run it like that, and he also did some financial engineering, he basically took all the revenue and all the sales and put it on the balance sheet in the form of credit. Like, so he did some magnificent, you know, makeshift things and people thought that was really cool. And I think at one time I thought it was cool, but ultimately CEO, like, what does that even mean? Yeah, he he definitely he definitely redefines it or tries to get you to redefine what a CEO means. Uh, you know, to us, the chief executive officer, we just think it's the the guy or girl running the show. Uh, at any probably Fortune five hundred is where you where you probably think first, but it's not. It's it's you know he's the guy or girl who oversees the people who are running the show he's really the the captain of the ship i think you talked about that he's the guy just guiding and making sure that we're on course and we're never falling out of the game and we're doing the right things and uh the ceo is i think what he called it was the chief vision officer is that correct Mm -hmm. yeah it's he's the, the keeper of the cause i think of people like this um he actually mentioned this actually in the in the book about uh who's the clippers steve ballmer he talked Palmer. about how Steve Ballmer had his in his retirement speech. All he talked about is how he crushed it as CEO. And he he literally had every single goal in mind, but uh, what he failed to to recognize is that under his wing, yeah, Microsoft made more money, but Microsoft's leadership and their just entire uh, 
ecosystem of people that work there just was deflated in a sense and it wasn't built for the long game it was really built for a quarterly or it was built for a fiscal year and every year it was managed just like your GE example as a way to how do we grow 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 that's all I talked about and that's how we viewed it uh it wasn't until someone else that got in there and thought more infinitely minded but uh, I think Elon Musk today is Elon Musk is a great example of a uh, a chief vision officer. I, I can't imagine Elon spends much time at Tesla or uh, at SpaceX or, you know, some of his other companies like the boring company. He has quite a few now that he's sitting there and actually doing the X's and O's and drawing up how to create profit. He's just creating timelines on a marketing scale. And he's just trying to reach those timelines and create a vision of a better place and colonize Mars. That, that's Elon Musk, in my opinion. I, I as well, you know, kind of look at this thing and say, what does chief executive officer even mean? Like, I know what chief marketing officer means. I know what chief financial officer means. I know what chief operating officer means. But chief of executive officer, what is he going to exec? I don't, I don't like, I, I didn't, that didn't click in my brain. We think of CEO and, you know, 40, 50 years ago, CEOs weren't famous, right? They just ran businesses. It just shows you a lot of the climate and, you know, this conversation could easily lead down to Bitcoin because that's what I do. <laughs> but how the entire climate changes and now CEOs are like these you know, famous people and they're, they're as famous as movie stars. I mean, awesome. I go, Elon Musk is probably more famous than any A-list celebrity. He's more <laughs> famous than Brad Pitt. Yeah. Right? Even Steve Jobs. But or Jeff Bezos, looking, right? Yes, Jeff Bezos. You look at this and they're way richer, but... I, I keep going back to this. What do they do? What does it even mean? And he talks about, we need to change their title. And it's like, oh, that's right. You need to be a chief vision officer. And I talked to, you know, the president of my company, he's very good. You got to have vision. You got to see what this, what you want this to be. And you got to always work towards it. And then when you talked about that existential flex, you got to be able to change that vision, which is really hard because that vision's way in the future. Right? So how can you take something that you were working towards that is five, 10, 20 years down the road, and then you turn it, right? Oh, never mind. We need to go because to turn something that far out, if you're off a little bit, it's way off. And I think, and I look at that example of the chief vision officer, I'm like, oh, that's what they're really in charge of. Hey, marketing officer. Hey, finance guy. I have the vision of this. Well, yeah, we need to have certain metrics in line, but if we get so focused on CAC and LTV and revenue and growth and uh, those items, it's going to really throw off what we're trying to do if we're only, only there to make money. Uh, I think I talk about this and maybe it's a later topic, but you know, if Henry Ford said a company that's only around to make money isn't a very good company. Well, that's a good it's a good point. And it's, it's tough, right? Cause we're in this climate now where, Oh, snowflakes and capitalism and rah, rah, rah. And it's like, if you don't believe in making money, you're soft. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. There's a lot of ways you can impact the world. It's cool. But I go back to, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm going on a little bit of a no, monologue here. When we talk about great CEOs, one guy I look at is Jack Dorsey. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, he's terrible. They can't monetize a product and yada, yada, <laughs> yada. Okay. But he keeps an engaged community on the platform. Okay. Maybe he's never going to grow it to something that Facebook is. And maybe it's not designed for that. But instead of always encapsulating grow, grow, grow and have this specific, specific method, he, he has been able to dodge a lot of the criticism that Zuckerberg hasn't been able to dodge. 
because Zuckerberg's kind of taken this more finite game approach. And he talks about this at the end of the book. You know, it's all about ad revenue, yada, yada, yada. It's like, no, Twitter's all about having a great forum for anybody to discuss with anyone. Jack does a good job, too. Jack, Jack embodies, we talked about in those five, uh, five principles, Jack embodies the resilient one, able to endure political, technological, and cultural change. Like, while Twitter and Facebook were face-to-face and head-to-head, I mean, since then, it's Snapchat, he's fighting off Evan Spiegel, and now it's TikTok. You know, he's, 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 he's facing off his technological um, future mammoth companies. The culture's changed since Twitter started. Uh, it was more of a news feed. Now it's a little bit more of an echo chamber with a news feed, but his political... Uh, what you've talked about there is he just faced a huge political backlash. He owns, so everyone, if you guys don't know, he is the CEO of Twitter and Square. And recently, I'd say sometime during the pandemic, uh, a group or a large investment group that has a, a large square, uh, has a large seat at the table in Square tried to try to kick him off of his own company. He, he, he was able to stay honest, the CEO, but I think he does a lot of different things. I mean, he's the one who he's the trendsetter for the stay-at-home crowd too. Think about it. Yeah, he was uh, Elliot Management try to get in there and throw him out because they are that finite mindset. They want to make a yeah. buck. Like, hey, come on, put more ads in that thing and let's, <laughs> let's sell more of this stuff. And he's like, no, like I'm just going to keep the people are flocking. I look at myself. I used to never be a Twitter guy. Now <laughs> I never go on Instagram and Facebook. I'm only on Twitter because it's a good community that allows me to go out and really engage with some of the smartest people in the world and the communities I like are finance and Bitcoin. And that's really popular on there, but sports betting and sports in general, it's a great, great place to find any type of information that you're really looking for in terms of having a conversation around it. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Twitter too. It's Twitter's kind of turned into, if you ask someone, how, where do they get their news back in the day? It's like Fox news, CNN, uh, to name MSNBC, and now you ask someone where they get the news, they're just like the internet. Is it Twitter or is it Facebook? You know, or is it Instagram? That's kind of where the new generation's gone. Is that's how they gather their internet or their their news? So let's talk about that a little bit. So you, we talked about like what a CEO is. He's a chief vision officer, and I think Simon goes into it a little bit about to be a chief vision officer. You got to build the right culture. So uh, you want to chat a little bit about building the right culture and why it's important. This is, again, we're getting into this touchy, what kind of is a feely snowflake environment where emotions matter. Like you want people happy coming to work. Have you ever went to, Grant, you've, you've went to work happy and like, oh man, I'm pumped to go to work. And you've also went to work like, oh, fuck, I got to go to work. When do you do better work? When you're like, ah, I get to go into work. Like, yeah. It's not, it's not like, oh, he's soft. Oh, he's a millennial. It's like, no, it's just emotions. It's human emotions that are actually driving our ability to work. And if you're more excited about a just cause that, hey, I'm going to Tesla to, to rid the world of you know, CO2 producing vehicles and transport the world cleaner, faster, and safer, you're more likely to say, yeah, I got, I got to go to work because I got to complete that mission. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, if you believe in that, you know, we talked. We we were bantering about it. And I was listening to another one of our episodes way back when, and uh, we talked about Tesla for a minute there. And I was like, you just want to drive Tesla because you just you want to. I'm not that much of an environmentalist. And it gets the best car. And I was like, well, I would drive a jet. And then we got into a helicopter conversation. It made me laugh. But uh, <laughs> to your point, building the right culture. Uh, he Simon describes culture is it's value plus behavior. So behavior is just like responding to incentives. So you, you talked about just goals, right? You incentivize, you know, 
people or tellers uh, who can sign up the most accounts, like Wells Fargo, for example, whoever can sign up the most accounts, uh, that person can kind of manipulate the system to hit his goal. And then that person can get promoted regardless of a million different variables. I think GE, uh, to your previous point, with Jack Walsh was a huge example of the, uh, the wrong type of culture to build, which was all about potential and profit. That's all it was about. Like whoever generated the most amount of sales this year would next year would become an associate and the year after that would become a director. And the year after that, if they continued that trend would just be instantly promoted to the highest positions in the company because they were reaching their goals had nothing to do with how they were treating other employees, their customer service, none of that. So you're right. GE did, did kind of have a false facade about the whole entire organization about how they transferred money onto the balance sheet in terms of their employees. Um, but that, that culture in, in the right places, it's, it's value plus behavior. And then you have to actually embody that value plus behavior in the real world. And in, in Patagonia, he, he alludes to this in the, his book is a really good example of that. They were incredibly hard on themselves because they wanted to be honest with their, their customer base and they would put out Facebook ads and their copy would literally be like, this was made by 22 bottles of water and 14 different raccoons. And this, I mean, that was the exact ingredients, but he talked about how they got to their, their sweater and what it meant to the environment and how they're trying to clean up their act to be X, Y, Z by a specific date. And Patagonia would only do things if it meant that the world around them was growing from it and not taking from it. Going back to the incentive piece, you hit it really well that, the reason Wells Fargo and people don't like to go there anymore is you incentivize people to do bad things. Um, and think about if I had to ask somebody and you had to ask somebody, take a Patagonia employee and take a Wells Fargo employee and who's happier to go to work? <laughs> Probably the Patagonia person. Don't yeah, get me wrong. Those so. vests are sweet. <laughs> I can't imagine the turnover is too high in that industry compared to just finance. But you know. Yeah. I mean, being, being a bank teller would suck anyway. Like, I wouldn't want that job. First job. But yeah, good getting off topic a little bit, but yeah, culture, like it's, it's just so important and people so overestimate it. And he talks a little bit, we might cover this a little later, but you have these organizations that talk about performance, you talk about um, the future and growth, and they talk about their people and well, you can, there's a direct correlation to what order those are in and how they perform in the long run the companies that put people at the highest and say our people like I look at our, I work for Nucor steel. They came out in the pandemic. And the first thing they said is we're going to guarantee everyone's wages. There's a minimum pay guarantee that no one's going to fall below. Well, yeah, that makes it pretty, pretty simple, you know? And then another thing, a couple of years ago when we had our best year ever, they said, we're going to give every employee 2000 bucks. That's not a lot to, to me, but think about like a steel frontline worker. And this is right before Christmas, like 2000 bucks. That's a, that's a great Christmas ah, like for somebody. <clears throat> yeah, it's a great Christmas. I didn't mean to cut you off. That's a phenomenal Christmas for me, laborer at that point. $2,000. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's going to crush it, but that, that's a form of capitalism. And I think in our, in our thread and our bullet point, we're going to talk about culture and capitalism and why most people in America, I mean, you see all the riots happening right now in the streets and the Occupy, uh, the Occupy 1% was a thing that happened two, three years ago uh, all under Trump's regime. But um, the, a lot of this was really built off of why people think capitalism is the worst and they want to go to socialism or communism because they just feel like those words are stronger. But, you know, we talk about this all the time. is that like capitalism isn't really broken. It's just the people running capitalism or people who are abusing the word capitalism in their own right manner. I'm, I'm sure you have many examples of this. 
who he talks about misusing capitalism and I didn't, and I knew like we always talk about like, Oh, cap- capitalism is not the problem. It's the fact that we have the state run capitalism yeah. that we have the federal reserve giving bailouts to companies that shouldn't be in existence. Mm-hmm. And it bails out the top 1% in terms of the executives all still get their bonuses, but yet they lay off all of their pilots and they lay off half their flight attendants. When you have situations like that, that's where people get, that's why people are really upset. And you correct capitalism is all about like performing the best in the market. And we touch on this later, but instead of the taxi cabs, you know, with the taxi versus Uber thing, I'm <laughs> yeah, jumping ahead. I love, I love that example, by the way. But the taxis, instead of trying to make the cab experience better and the yeah. transportation better, you know what, you know what happened? They, they just said, no, 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 we get that. We have all these people hired. We get to stay the same. We get to stay our shitty service. We could just stay an absolute garbage service. We shouldn't have to change. That should be illegal. Yeah. The best, thing, the best thing that happened to Uber wasn't beating the taxi services. It was actually Lyft coming about. So they had a worthy, worthy component. But yeah, I mean, taxis trying to sue their competitor because they didn't want to involve is just a horrible version of capitalism. Let me give you an easy example. So I work in sports. The Pac-12 on Thursday, last past Thursday, announced that sports are coming back, right? But in the same day, all these articles came out about the CEO or the commissioner, his name's Larry Scott of the Pac-12. He upped his bonus. So typically bonus times around October, he took a $2.5 million bonus in February, right before the coronavirus hit him and all his employees, took a $2.5 million bonus, and then three weeks later, fired half of his staff. That's literally the example you're talking about. They, they knew. Two and a half weeks before, they knew. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to up this thing six months, take my $2.5 million bonus, and then, uh, sorry, guys, I'm going to have to cut half our workforce. They didn't furlough them. They just cut them. <laughs> so. Yeah, great, great point, because capitalism is designed to make sure that people get the best products and services. Think about how many times you feel screwed. Your bank, oh, well, that's the rules. What do, what do you mean? You got all that money. Like, just loan me 25 bucks for the day. Great, and then I'll my you got my direct deposit going in Friday. <laughs> you know, that's just the, it's a very loose example, but it's I go example. back to the I go back to the Bezos. Like, hey, we're not going to charge you on return shipping. It's free return shipping if you don't get what you thought you were getting. That's on us. <laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good example. And then capitalism, I think uh, this is where a lot of CEOs and other companies turn their cheek as the cause of blindness. And what they're talking about is, you know, they have capitalism and they're trying to create a free market. So there are no monopolies and the best winner wins. And they, you know, the her person selling and the person receiving a product or service, everyone walks away happy. We want to cause blindness scenario. Uh, this often happens on Wall Street, like we talked about. Uh, it takes no accountability. So it's not really the CEO. Can be like, well, it's not the fault of me or the CEO or the individual. It's the systems problem. And you see this all along America right now. I mean, not really business, but how they're like blaming the police and defunding the police. And you're just thinking like, wow, well, you know, and everyone, the, the comeback is that like not all police are horrible. You know, nine out of 10 are pretty good. It's the one that ruins it for everybody. And um, they talk about how it's the system's fault that's pushing down, you know, X, Y, Z. We don't need to get into it, but, but that's the cause of blindness. The people at the top, the CEO, whoever's running it, uh, they can kind of do and see whatever they want because of the loopholes in the system. So, you know, the example given in the book was the EpiPen. I forgot the name of the female that runs it, but the EpiPen was created to help people who have heart attacks and help people who are in conditions where to stabilize them if they have panic attacks. Uh, well, that EpiPen at one point was pretty affordable. And then over the past seven years, that, that price of the EpiPen rose by 500%. 
And the only reason it rose by that much is because the CEO is like, well, I found a direct correlation. The more we rise the price of an EpiPen, then I get a bigger bonus potential and our shares will rise and everyone around you wins. And don't, but then you're thinking not everyone around you won because the person who actually needs the product now has to pay 500% more seven years later. So, you know, while your cause was to make more money and grow, the end determinant or the beneficiary of it actually failed to see any benefits other than more money out of their pocket if they can't afford it. And it also costs taxpayers millions of dollars and they were overcharging the, the government on Medicaid for this service it, because they said, well, it's capitalism. I have the best product. Oh, I got the, this and that. And that's an example of misusing capitalism. Uh, perfect example. Uh, EpiPen, that company also suffered from this next topic where they didn't really have a worthy arrival, you know, because they were a monopoly, they were just kind of allowed to run around and do whatever they want. And they didn't really have to kind of get better. Do you have some, what would that have meant to the EpiPen and then other examples in business that were, as you say, and you coined this perfectly, iron sharpens iron. Yeah, iron sharpens iron. It's used in sports. It's just a worthy rival, you know. Like in order to be the best, you got to beat the best. That's what they always tell you. It's just like a healthy component of an infinite mindset related to whatever your plan is. So, like competition helps boost new skills and uh, and confidence, along with keeping yourself honest. And uh, an example they talked about that I can give you is like Apple. Apple, the moment IBM welcomed the moment. Apple took over as kind of the, the, the leader in its industry. IBM came into the market and Apple took out a, a full page ad in the newspaper welcoming IBM to the market, knowing that if IBM's there, it creates it creates a worthy rival. It creates something to focus their attention off of. It makes them more accountable and makes them honest with themselves. And they have to go to the R&D department and they have to pivot and evolve because if they don't, they're going to lose market share to IBM. I think this is happening all around the world right now. Like think of, Uber. we just talked about it. You know, the taxis wanted to sue Uber and Uber's like, oh, we're going to crush you guys. You have no, you have no desire to, to meet us on our level. You just want to sue us. And then boom, Lyft starts. Now it's Uber and Lyft. Coke did this for a while until boom, Pepsi started. And we're, we're one thing we saw this week, like DraftKings. DraftKings is doing it. Next thing you know, Penn Gaming and Barstool wants to join the conversation with DraftKings and FanDuel. Like you need to, Bring these people to the market in order to strengthen your brand. Uh, I think these are great real-world examples of iron sharpens iron or a worthy rival. What about what do you have? A core component of capitalism is competition, and you need competition. You need a worthy rival to not only push you, um, but to make sure you're kind of playing a fair game, right? If you're EpiPen, you're, I'm the only one that makes it, so you guys got to pay whatever I tell you to pay. Well, okay, well, you, you have the cheat code for the next six years or seven years until your patent runs out, but then no one's going to do business with you. Everyone's going to go and look elsewhere to figure, to, to do business with somebody else. And if you think about, you know, Amazon kind of coming in and running e-commerce, basically stepped in and said, no, no, no. Like you, you other companies that are selling online and charging $12 shipping fees out and then $12 shipping fees back for things that don't work and you only get it right 60% of the time. No, no now you got to play on our playing field. And that's what capitalism and uh, markets are. Like they create, like you have to be that good. And if you're taking advantage of it, somebody will jump in and fill that need or exploit your exploitation. It's kind of the, the double, double speak there. But if you're taking advantage of a customer, well, the market can say, no, 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 I can do it better. I can make good money not treating people that way. That's kind of the example I look at, a worthy rival, core competency, or not a core competency, a core facet of capitalism we go back to is competition. You have to have rigorous competition. 
again, we go back to Facebook. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Facebook's in a monopoly at all, but they are buying up anybody and everybody that might potentially infringe on their consumer base. Yeah, that they can afford. I mean, I think Google is closer to a monopoly than Facebook for sure. I mean, you can't even think of their, I mean, Google's across so many different platforms. You just think search engine, you're like, well, Google, Bing, you know, duck, duck, gum. I guess that's not, that's not all they do. But yeah, I think Facebook can monopolize it. But Facebook's still at a point where it can lose. And it can lose like MySpace did. I mean, they're way more mature than MySpace in the data age, but they could, they could still lose. Companies come up all the time. TikTok was here you know, an hour ago, and now it has more market share than all of them besides Facebook and Instagram. So, I mean, it happens fast. Um, so you, you need to be, as a leader, Mike Zuckerberg needs to kind of focus on what Simon talks about in the, near the end of his book, and this is important, is existential flexibility. So you want to kind of talk about ex- existential flexibility and what it means in the business world? Yeah, I kind of jumped the gun when I was talking about the CEO versus CVO, Chief Vision Officer. But you got to be able to have a picture of the vision that you that you see and here, let me just rewind you got to have a vision of the future like your just cause that is it doesn't exist yet walt disney's the example he uses in the book i think this is an excellent topic walt disney left the film kind of making business to go and build a park a getaway because he realized that there is more that you can build and more impact you can have on someone's life if you give them a true escape instead of a a static video like videos as he talks about movies once you make them they're done but once you build the park think about how much disney world and disneyland have changed they've added in the pixar realm they've changed a lot of star wars stuff they've added all these different things it's not snow white and the seven doors it's not cinderella anymore it's not those just same movies they've added so much more to allow you to escape they buy they buy companies like marvel they buy star wars they give truly really remarkable escape experiences i mean just look at the marvel cinematic universe you watched it i watched it that was awesome that was fun to live in that world for the three six hours that we watched the last two movies yeah walt disney is the the little bit of creme de la creme of this example he you know to give everyone an example of what existential flexibility is it's just a flex move really this move uh is a complete 180 than what you're currently doing in your direction in order for you to stay alive. So you're going down, you know, you're going this way down a straight line and you literally turn around and do a 180 and come back this way. That's kind of what an existential flexibility is. It's like you're thinking on such a longer, you're thinking more in eras and you're thinking if you pivot now, yeah, there's going to be some short time losses or short next three to five years, you might eat it. But you know 10 to 15, 20 years from now, you're going to be back at the top. That's really what an existential flex is. And uh, you talked about Disneyland and, you know, I think the whole example in his book, Walt Disney started this company and he created this animated motion picture, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that came out in like 1939. And it was the first thing anybody had ever seen. And in order to do once he did that, uh, that all these founders and money and everywhere and shareholders came from all these places and they wanted to start this whole big business about it. And ultimately they became public and Walt didn't really love what was happening. So uh, he left and he created his own company and started, he called it uh, WED. It's like Walt something Disney. I don't know what his real name is. We called it that. And it's essentially what it is, is Disneyland now. And you wanted to create it to your point on a plant on, on the premise that like the characters can continually evolve. And, you know, you watch Moana and you watch Cinderella and you watch all these Disney movies, like those characters 
when they get into season two and three and four, when you go to these places, they're constantly evolving. They're doing other things. I mean, look at the Marvel movies. Like Thor had a beard, and then he was fat, and then he had long hair, and then he's of an eye. Like he constantly evolved over time. It was a pretty good example of it. Uh, my example about Steve Jobs was, I think, on point with this. Was just like he was going down this path about a computer operated system. He saw the mouse. He did a complete one eighty and just destroyed all those resources and went completely in a different path to become the next frontier. Because he thought moving forward that the world was going to be based off of convenience, and that's why the BlackBerry died, and that's why the Apple phone grew is because he thought convenience was more important to people than price, and that's what he did. He created one button and a touchscreen. Crazy to think about. We we use Jobs and Apple a lot because they're key players and like their core is the Infinite game. Think about what Apple used to be. It used to be personal computers, and the reason they got their market share to where they did is because they built com- personal computers and they had the mouse and it was easy to use. And then oh, other companies came into the personal computer realm. Guess what? They just kept pivoting to what what are people going to want in the future? And they led this whole whole industry to this mobile first world that we live in now they literally built the house that facebook and uber and airbnb that all these guys live on right it's just incredible to think of because they are playing an infinite game they are not trying to beat you tomorrow we're trying to build where are people going you know it's the hockey analogy like don't skate where the puck is skate where it's going mm-hmm. that's kind of what they're doing and it's it's really we, we kind of fawn over it but it's it's really impressive when you think about how long and how long they've been this good for like what fifty years something like that. It's 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 incredible. They've had their ups and downs, but that's part of it. They and the major variable, and this is probably our last point that they talk about is growth. And like growth isn't every everything because you know you think of the tech the tech sector and the stock market and Bitcoin and all you want it to do is grow and grow and grow because it's more money and. Uh, you know, I think a lot of companies when they IPO, they're evaluated after three, six, nine months, the first three quarters, four quarters, and then they're evaluated in their three and five year plans and where they're going. And it's all about how quickly they're growing and what, what pace they're growing. And Simon Sinek does an awesome job of breaking this down about growth really isn't all that important. You could be growing. There's really no one way to grow. You could be growing at 150% this year and that 20% the next year. And that really doesn't have any determinant on how your price should be because your growth should vary based on where you are, what resources you have available to you, and then what what your infinite or just cause is in order to get there. And as long as that growth mindset is furthering along your just cause, regardless of if it's like 10, 25, 50, 150, it doesn't matter as long as you're staying in the game. Growth isn't really that meaningful. That was at least a variable I took from it. Yeah, we always reference the wall street kind of mantra is if you're not growing you're dying you got to keep growing and you got to keep moving forward or you're gonna your stock's gonna go down and you see if they don't hit growth targets they're slapped around but there's also more ways to grow than financially like you can grow a percentage of your employees that have better lives like that matters i don't care like twitter and jack going off work from home he basically saying no you can come in the office but if you want to work from home and you want to go live in the middle of texas or you want to go live in the the canadian mountains well go ahead i'm not going to stop you i just care that you get your job done but i want to make sure this is a place that you're like oh wow that's really kind of cool that i get the option and he trusts me enough to do this so i'm going to reward him that i'm going to do really good work um but yeah the, the growth isn't everything story goes back to we talked about the t- the Uber versus taxi cabs and 
Uber's growing, which is a good thing. But then the, the taxis are like, oh, we're losing all this business. And since they were like, oh, we're going to, we're going to die. We just need to fight our way using litigation and using the wrong tools instead of making an experience better. It doesn't, if you don't have to be growing traditional revenue, what if you're growing more value for your customer? Well, long-term that's going to help out way more than trying to get short-term revenue by being sticky. If you're, let's grow the value to the customer. That's going to be the ultimate, ultimate driver of success. It's definitely the band-aid to the real problem. I, I, I listened to a podcast this weekend. I mean, you were a fan of Joe Pompliano, and he brought up a question, and I was fascinated by the question. I wanted to talk so badly about it on this podcast, and I haven't even told you about it, so I'm firing at you right away. He says, he says is TV ready for the internet content? That was a quote he mentioned, because he talked about the evolution of everything and how you had cable, and now you have like all these packages like Hulu and Netflix and all these things, and you know you had radio, and then you have podcasts. And in a previous podcast, Eric Nardini, the CEO of Barstool, talked about how podcasts are just the evolution of the entire industry. It gets decentralized down to like podcasts, and like movies will be created from podcasts and scripts and all these things. And then getting ready for, I thought of this comment as like, is TV ready for internet content? Is like, is Fox and is ESPN and just think of all TNT? Are they all ready for? just like the blogosphere of internet come out and having their own like barstool sports show and media empire, like things that were born from the internet that now becoming the commonplace in this distribution network. Are they ready for it? And it made me think like, yeah, that's a form of growth that's happening. Like who, who's going to pivot in the 21st century. That's on top. What do you think? Is TV ready for internet content? <laughs> it kind of goes back to, I don't think it matters. I think TV's on the way out. Why do we watch TV? I mean, don't get me wrong. Old people still watch it, but the millennial Jason and uh, millennial generation and under, like it's it's largely done that we watch we watch live sports and that's what we watch. Mm-hmm. Everything else, like people were like, oh, ESPN's gonna die, or ESPN like, oh, blah blah blah, and this and that. My theory is always ESPN's gonna die because we don't watch highlights anymore on ESPN. We watch them on Instagram. We watch them on Twitter. We catch all the highlights that way. That's why we went to ESPN. We didn't go to ESPN because it was the game. We clicked it on. We left it on the background and we just let it run and watch all the highlights and we watch the top 10 and this and that, but you don't get that anymore. Uh, we we're going to shorter type of content. But another thing you say is TV has all these rules, right? You can't say this. You can't do that. Uh, you, you have to have all these, um, certain philosophies because the government says the government's trying to protect us, right? Whatever. Um, parents, parent, that's what I say. Um, and then you have basically an open forum where I can get on and you have Dave Portnoy who goes on and you have big cat who do their own shows, record them in five minute clips, three minute clips, which is great for toilet viewing, right? Yeah. Facebook captured the toilet. Instagram captured the toilet. Like that's that toilet time basically took away from newspapers. That's how newspapers were used to get all the time. Now it's, you know, the, the, the cell phone. It's funny. Gary V talks about it all the time. Like oh, we're not buried. Your dad and your grandfather were buried in newspapers and now we're just buried in our cell phones. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He does the same thing about like text messaging or writing a pen letter. It's all the same thing. It's all about the message. How do you care how you craft that message? So yeah, I don't that, think that, I answered your question. I think I just kind of rambled on what kind of came. came yeah, well, my mind. I don't think anybody knows the answer to it. I think when that that question came up, is is TV ready for like the internet? I don't think anybody's ready for it yet. We're just going to kind of see how it pans out. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of 
stars that come out of podcasting and the internet that never were before that just all of a sudden randomly become you know 81 million views on a piece of content or platform that they own or it's like a twitch platform yeah and i don't to be honest i don't think the internet needs tv i think tv needs the internet more Uh, i think yeah you think cnbc they're getting a million views maybe a day million Mm -hmm. viewers like well portnoy can take down a quarter of that just with a, a a webcam and well, I, what will be free first? Think of it that way. Like, what's going to be free for the entire public to consume? Internet or TV first? Internet. Yeah, exactly. So I think the, the first, it's an arms race. The first one to give out a free subscription to, it can even be AOL, you know, like it could be that. It's still a free version of internet that a lot of people don't have. Once that's available, that will ultimately be TV every time. Ultimately, it has to. It's just more market share. Well, just think about podcasts in general. Like, nobody listens to the radio. You listen to Spotify and we listen, I listen to all podcasts and it's like, mm-hmm. I get phenomenal content. There used to be gatekeepers, right? And you have to get, you have to know somebody to become a TV show guy and you have to have all these, <laughs> no, look at us two idiots doing our own podcast because we're talking about things that we love to talk about. We would have this conversation around a beer. No problem. Yeah. I just hope that we don't get big enough where we get Joe Rogan. Well, I hope I make $400 million, but then I have people trying to edit my content and that's, yeah, I mean, that's probably the next frontier of policing it. Right. Hey, if you want to edit my content, that's fine. I, I don't want to. <laughs> Somebody else can complain. You think Joe Rogan cares? I don't, I don't give a shit if that InfoWars guy's episode's available. Who cares? I don't. I think at $400 I mean, million, dollars he cares. You know? Well, as long as, yeah, as long as you give me the $100 million up front, you guys can do whatever you want on the back end, as long as I keep having shows. Yeah, Dave Porn, I gave a real honest opinion. He's like, hey, if DraftKings and uh, uh, FanDuel wanted to buy you, would you even say, yeah? He's like, all right, it depends on the price. I was like, what a great answer. If someone came out, I was like, here's a billion dollars. I'm like, yeah, just give me the billion dollars. I'm out. See ya. See ya. I mean, I'm just going to live in Nantucket. Yeah, deuces every time. I can live off a billion dollars. I'm sure he could at 43. Just about everything is free at a billion dollars, as you once said. (laughs) That's a good quote. So you want to run it back and kind of conclude with our, our, uh, our normal mantra? Yeah, overall, I mean, what we're what we're doing, guys, is just giving you kind of a thought, thought, or giving you a look into our thoughts and how we look at things. And this is how you get better every day: is reading, taking in new content, bouncing ideas off your friends, uh, and you got to have a good circle of friends to to trust. But so we read the Infinite Mindset. We really looked at having a just cause for your organization. That's going to really drive um, overall, like how long and you're going to play the game and you're always going to have to be pivoting and you're always going to have to understand um, what it is in the long run. And ultimately, like I go back to this, you got to have vision. We got to have vision for this podcast. You got to have vision for your life. You got to know where you want to be in a 20 year time frame, And that's really going to help you kind of take you down a path. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of ranting again, but <laughs> Uh, no it's good we talked about the five principles on top of that you can listen to the podcast again and then we we really referred to the ceo and how the ceo is more the chief vision officer and not uh the chief executive officer and then we just pandered about culture and capitalism and uh cause blindness and and how you need a worthy rival we called it iron sharpens iron but you need a worthy rival in order to challenge you to be better uh an existential flexibility was a point that we made uh, referring to just a CEO or a leader or a vision leader, whoever it might be, being able to make a 180 decision on the fly, knowing that in the short term it could hurt your stock, it could hurt your company, but in the long term you'll be 10x, 15, 50x based on what you're trying to do and what your just cause is, and, and then identifying that by growth and how growth isn't a huge determinant of who you are as a company. It helps, and it helps meet 
stock market and investor and stakeholder goals, but growth can be anywhere from 5% to 150%. It doesn't matter. So that was really the theme of the book and the just cause being probably the overarching theme to your point. Ultimately, we're trying to help you guys get lucky and luck is when opportunity meets preparation. We're trying to prepare you guys to get lucky. So get ready.